Revelation chapter 11. Let me introduce it this way as you're turning there. It was 1999 and we were involved in a building project, just like we're involved now in our building project here. Uh, at that time, uh, I, I was at uh, Revival Christian Fellowship, church that my wife and I had started, little Bible study, and by God's grace, it grew and grew and grew. And so in 1999, we were building a new church building. And we'd waited for months. We'd worked with the architect. We were waiting for our working drawings to be completed. And the day finally came. The working drawings were done. And I picked up the set, and I'm looking at them. Now, I'm no architect. I'm, I'm no building contractor but the plans just didn't look right to me for some reason. I'm like, this is, I don't know, I can't put my finger on it, just something doesn't seem right. So I called my father-in-law, construction, you know, superintendent, construction manager, general contractor, and, and he and his partner between the two of them been in, in the business over 100 years at that point. I'm like, hey, would you look at these plans for me? And Alex is like, yeah, come on over, you know. So I drop off the plans to him, and if, several hours later, he calls me. He says, well, there's a reason the plans don't look right to you. There's no second floor on your plans. Now, they were in the elevation, the drawing that shows you what the building looks like in the outside. You look at the building, it's got an upstairs, it's got a downstairs, but in the working drawings, no stairways, no, no elevator, no supporting columns, nothing for the upstairs. And so we talked to our architect. Now, in his defense, he's, he's like, well, hey, listen, I don't show any of this, the second story because they're... We're not building the second floor in the first phase. So I, I've just done the working drawings to include the first phase, and then when it comes time to build the second floor, we'll, we'll do the plans for that. Well, here's the problem with that. The guy didn't measure correctly. And because he didn't measure correctly and take into account that, well, this first phase that we were building, the we're putting up a steel building, and the foundations are the, are the size of Volkswagens. Man, they're huge. And he didn't measure to realize that if we had built the first phase without preparing for and laying the foundation, the, the supports for the, the, sub, the subsequent second floor columns, well, they would never fit. And so what would happen then is we maybe could build this building and get an occupancy permit, but when the time came to build the second floor, we would have had to tear the whole thing down and start over. He's, we narrowly avoided a disaster. Well, the moral of the story is summed up by a quote that's familiar to every contractor. You measure twice and you cut once, right? And, and so I tell you that story by way of introduction because here what we're going to see today in our text is that, that God is, begins the, the chapter here instructing John um, that uh, he is to measure the temple. And as we're going to see, this, when God measures things, he measures the things that belong to him, including us. And, and he calls us to take measurement as well. That's what we're going to look at today. Revelation chapter 11. We'll be in verses 1 and 2 today. Get into the two witnesses next week. Lots to talk about there. Um, Revelation 11, verse 1, Then I was given a reed like a measuring rod, and the angels stood, saying, Rise and measure the temple of God, the altar, and those who worship there. But leave out the court, which is outside the temple, and do not measure it, for it has been given to the Gentiles, and they will tread the holy city underfoot 
for 42 months. Revelation chapter 11 here, it continues the events that we read about last week in Revelation chapter 10. It takes place chronologically during the pause between the 6th and the 7th trumpet judgments. And we left off with Jesus telling this to John uh, in Revelation chapter 10 verse 11. He says, and he said to me, you must prophesy again about many peoples, nations, tongues, and kings. And so immediately now in chapter 11, the focus shifts to the nation of Israel, to their capital of Jerusalem, um, and to the events and the conditions that are there in Jerusalem during the last days. And notice that the focus is on a very significant place in Jerusalem. The focus is on the temple, and this is going to be very important to our study today. The first temple that Solomon built uh, was, was destroyed by the Babylonians in 587 B.C. We recently went through First and Second Samuel. We saw that God had laid it on David's heart to build a temple. Um, and, um, and so, you know, David, well, I should phrase it this way, David had it on his heart to build the temple. And so he, you know, was amassing all of the, the materials and so on to build the temple. But God spoke to David and said, you can't build it, you're a man of war, you got blood on your hands, your son's going to build it. So David amassed all the materials, and then his son Solomon subsequently built that temple. Now the Babylonians destroyed it in 587 B.C., and then what happened was, in 20 B.C., um, so roughly you know, 567 years later, Herod the Great rebuilt that temple. That's the temple, the one that Herod rebuilt. That's the temple that stood in Jesus' day. Um, And uh, Jesus prophesied that that temple, that second temple, would also be destroyed. And that prophecy came to pass in 70 AD. But Jesus also alluded that there would be a third temple that would be standing during the time of of Antichrist. Matthew's Gospel, Matthew 24, Jesus said, the day is coming when you will see what Daniel the prophet spoke about, the sacrilegious object that causes desecration standing in the holy place. Now, Jesus was referencing a prophecy that was given to Daniel in in Daniel chapter 9. And what went down basically during this time, God had allowed the nation of Israel uh, to be taken into Babylonian captivity. You see, God had commanded that the nation of Israel was to give the land a Sabbath year's rest. Every seventh year, they were to give the land a year-long rest. And, well, for 490 years, Israel disobeyed God. They, they, they would just continue to, to plant in the land. They never gave it its Sabbath year's rest. And so... That added up to 70 years worth of Sabbath rests that they had failed to keep. And so God allowed Babylon to conquer Israel, to destroy the city, to destroy the temple, and to take Israel into captivity for 70 years. And so what what transpires, and Daniel being a young man when when the nation's taken into captivity... Now he's an old man, and he's reading his Bible one day, and he realizes, hey, we're coming up on 70 years here. So he goes to God in prayer. He's like, what's up? What, what, what you doing? What are you cooking on, God? And this is how God replies to him. 
Daniel chapter 9, beginning verse 24, throw it on the screen for you. God says, 70 weeks are determined for your people, for your holy city, to finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. Know, therefore, and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks. The street shall be built again and the wall even in troublesome times. And after the 62 weeks, Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself. And the people of the Prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end of it shall be with a flood... Until the end of the war, desolations are determined. And then he shall confirm a covenant with many for one week. But in the middle of the week, he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering. He's speaking of the Antichrist here. And on the wing of abomination shall be one who makes desolate even until the consummation which is determined is poured out on the desolate. And so here's the deal. In Hebrew, the word weeks simply refers to a unit of seven. And so the idea here is that each week is comprised of a week of years. And so what God is telling Daniel is that 70 weeks of years are determined. For who? He says, for your people and for your holy city. So he's speaking of the Jews. He's speaking of Jerusalem. And for what purpose are they determined? Well, you see it there in verse 24. He says they're, they're, they're determined for six things. To finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. Now, what's the only way that all of these things are possible? Well, it's through the Messiah. It's through Jesus Christ. And so God lays out here his specific plan. He says, look, there's going to be seven weeks of years until the command to restore and rebuild Jerusalem is given. And then there's going to be 62 weeks of years after that that Jesus, the Messiah, is going to come. And that's exactly what happened. We we see that Jesus came exactly 69 weeks of years to the day after this prophecy was given. But that still accounts, or doesn't account rather, for one seven-year cycle because he said 70 weeks of years are determined. So 69 are counted for until Jesus came and was then ultimately rejected. And so what happens to the last week of years? Well, what happened was that Israel rejected their Messiah. And when Israel rejected their Messiah, God hit the pause button on Israel. And then he turned his focus to the Gentiles, to you and me. This is what we know as the church age or the age of the Gentiles. And so what happened there is that God's prophetic time clock, well, the pause button was hitting. I've explained it this way before. It's kind of like soccer. You play soccer and the time clock runs and then when the game should be over, it's not over. What happens? Well, you've got this thing called stoppage time, right? And, and stoppage time is all of the minutes where the game was delayed because of all these various things that would go on. And the ref keeps track of stoppage time. And so people have a vague idea of how long stoppage time, but nobody really knows except for the ref. 
right? And then he'll blow it when that time is up. And so that's the age that we live in. It's this age of stoppage time where God says, pause Israel, I'm going to turn to the Gentiles, and, and I'm going to focus on, hey, establishing my church and reaching all that I can to save. And of course, the Bible teaches that God uses the Gentiles to make the nation of Israel jealous because he wants to bring them back to himself. And so what happens now is that we live in this period of time. Pause button on Israel, church age, time of the Gentiles. This is a season of grace when whoever believes should not perish but have everlasting life. But at some point soon, (coughs) the church is going to be raptured and God then is going to turn his attention back to Israel. That's when the, the prophecy clock starts ticking again on this 70th week for Israel. Now take note what triggers this final week. God tells Daniel in verse 27 of the verses we just read. <coughs> he says, he, speaking of the Antichrist, um, verse 26, he's, he calls him the prince that is to come. He will confirm a covenant with many for one seven or for seven year period. In the middle of the seven, he will put an end to sacrifice and offerings. And at the temple, which, by the way, means that there will be a third temple during this time in Jerusalem. And so at the temple, he says, he will set up an abomination that causes desolation until the end that is decreed is poured out upon him. And so the prophecy that God gives Daniel here is what the seven-year tribulation is going to look like. And he says, look, it's going to start with peace for three and a half years, um, and then it's going to end with three and a half years of war on an unimaginable scale. We've been going through that as we've been seeing the seals of the prophecy opened up, as we've seen the the trumpet uh, judgments, the the trumpets being blown. And if you'll recall, when we were in Revelation chapter 6, that we found this exact scenario. 69 weeks of years had passed, the church was raptured, and then the prophetic clock started ticking on on Jerusalem again, on on Israel again, as Jesus then began to open the seals. And as Jesus opened the first seal there in Revelation chapter 6, Antichrist entered the scene. He was riding a white horse. He was carrying a bow. No mention of arrows in that bow, and that's symbolic of a guy who comes offering peace, white, the symbol of peace, the empty bow, a symbol of, hey, you know, peace. And, and so he, he promises this peace, but it's a false peace. And so then Revelation chapter 6, verses 3 and 4, when Jesus opened the second seal, we saw a red horse symbolizing war, and its rider takes this false peace from the earth. And, and so that ushers in the last three and a half years of tribulation, of war, of, of the Antichrist making war against God's people. And so now, turning our attention back here to Revelation chapter 11, let me ask you a question. Understanding that there's going to be a temple in the promised land during the tribulation period, and there's not a temple right now, what's the biggest obstacle to a temple being built right now? I'll tell you what it is. It's, it's the, the, the Dome of the Rock mosque that sits on the Temple Mount. The Dome of the Rock Mosque is the, the, the place where Muslims go to worship. And they've built it on this strategic spot because they say this is the spot where Abraham offered 
Ishmael. Now, it's not that. It is the spot where, where Abraham offered Isaac, as the Bible teaches, as every Christian and Jew believes. This is where God offered Isaac. But the, but the Muslims believe, no, this is the place where God offered Ishmael. They also believe that this is the place where the archangel Gabriel came and carried Muhammad up into heaven. Never happened, but this is what they believe. And so what that makes the Temple Mount is the most holy site in Islam. And so for that reason, it is absolute World War III if the Jews decide that they're going to destroy that mosque and build a new temple there. And so that's kind of the scenario we live in today. Um, Now, Revelation chapter 11 verses 1 and 2 seems to suggest that Antichrist comes up with a solution for this problem during that time. Because you've got, in verse 1, you've got the temple of God, you've got the altar, you've got the people there all assembled. And then in verse 2, you've got the outer court that's given over to the Gentiles. In part, this is a reality today. In part, today, you've got, you know, you've got the, the, the old city that's under, under Israeli control... But the mosque remains there, and the mosque is under the administration of the Jordanian and the Palestinian-led Islamic Council. And so, in the future, what's going to happen is the temple is going to share this site with the Gentiles. They're, they're going to figure out a way to put both of these things up there. Right now, the, the situation is, is that you've already got the Gentiles there, the Dome of the Rosk Mosque there, But simultaneously today, you've got in Israel an organization that's called the Temple Mount Faithful. If you've ever been over to Israel, I was there several years ago, I got a chance to visit the offices of the Temple Mount Faithful, and this is a group of Jews who, like David did, they are amassing all of the materials right now to build their temple up on the Temple Mount. And they're just waiting for the opportunity. Now they think what's going to happen is that, that this temple is going to be destroyed and then they're going to usher in and build, or the, this Dome of the Rock Mosque is going to be destroyed and they're going to usher in and build it. Um, but archaeologists right now are looking into the very real possibility that the site of the original Jewish temples, the first two temples, aren't, were not exactly where they think they were. They think that the location is actually located several hundred yards south of where it is right now. And there's some evidence to suggest that. Now, if that's the case, and it very well may be the case, then it opens up the opportunity that in the future, what they'll do is they'll recognize, oh, wait a minute, the way the temple is structured for the holy place and the the rooms that are surrounding the holy place, well, moving this and identifying that the the location of those was actually a couple hundred yards south, well then, what do you have beyond that in the temple complex? You have the court of the Gentiles. And so what's going to happen, it seems very likely, that in the future they're going to build side by side. That under that kind of scenario, they'll say, oh, we can build the, the temple and we can leave the Dome of the Ross Mosque right where it is because it's in the court of the Gentiles and that's given over to the Gentiles. And so they'll just build a wall between the two and, and they'll have them both. And, and so 
Uh, here in Revelation chapter 11, the, the, the angel tells John, look, measure the temple, measure the altar, measure those who worship. And as we, as we looked at in the beginning, just the act of being told to measure something, that indicates that you own it. And this is what God does. He says, I own this, I want to measure it. Somebody comes up, shows up at your house, and, and they want to you know, do a, a home inspection of your house and start measuring stuff. You know, they just randomly knock on your door, walk in, start measuring stuff. You're going to kick them out. Why? Because they don't own your house. You do. But if you sold your house and the new owner sent a guy over to inspect it to, to like close the deal because he's buying it because he's going to become the new owner, then that would be a very likely scenario. So God, here he tells John, look, I own that. Go measure it. And so as John begins measuring the, the, the temple, the altar, and those who worship there, well, one of, there's a couple things to, to note. First of all, God clearly says, don't measure the, outside, the area outside the temple. He says, that's given over to the Gentiles. In other words, look, that doesn't have anything to do with me. Don't measure that. Now, there's a prophecy in Ezekiel 43 that seems to address this. Here's what it says. It says, they put their idols, their idol altars right next to mine, with only a wall between them and me, they defiled my holy name by such detestable sin, so I consumed them in my anger. In other words, God condemns the fact that only a wall is going to separate the holy temple from the other profane religious structures. And evidently, this seems to be a prophecy about the Dome of the Rock Mosque that will sit right next to the rebuilt Jewish temple building in the last days. Now, what we see here in Revelation 11, verse 2, that, that these, these Gentiles, they trample the city for 42 months. 42, very telling number. What is that? It's three and a half years. Fits right together with the prophecy that what seemingly here we're reading is that in the last half of the seven-year tribulation period, the, the, the Antichrist and the, the Gentiles are going to trample the city underfoot. Now, that's the first thing to note. Second thing to note about this, and this is important, is that the Greek word there in verse 2 that, uh, that is used, temp, the temple, the word temple in the Greek, it relates only to the holy place and not to the entire temple complex. So, so here's the idea. The holy place was only where the priest could go. Okay? And so it was separated by a veil. And only the priest could go through this veil and he entered into the Holy of Holies. And there in the Holy of Holies was the, the Ark of the Covenant. And the Ark of the Covenant, you know, inside was the, you know, the stone tablets that Moses had crushed and the, and, and the, 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 the manna and all, that, that's inside. Then on top was a seat with two cherubim facing each other and that was known as the mercy seat of God. And so you have the priest who would go in and intercede for the believers at the mercy seat of God. He was the only one that was allowed in there. Meanwhile, what would happen? All the worshipers outside of this whole of the most holy place, they're they're, they're located outside of this. And what they would do is they would pray and they would make their sacrifices at a place known as the brazen altar. 
And John is told not, not just to measure the holy place, but he's also told to measure the altar, and he's told to measure the people there at the altar. What's the significance of that? Well, what's transpiring here, many people look at this and they say, well, what you have in Revelation 11 verses 1 and 2 is you have people who've placed their faith in Christ there at the temple worshiping the Lord. I don't think so. What you have here is you've got a description of people collected, gathered at the brazen altar. What do they do at the brazen altar? They make animal sacrifices to atone for their sin And the priest then, inside the Holy of Holies, prays for their sin before the mercy seat of God. And so it's it's the, we've made this atonement for our sins, we're interceding there before the mercy of God, and because of this atonement that we've made, now we can be made right with God. It's it's this this work of the law, it's this work of of the flesh. Now... Remember, John was instructed to measure the altar, those who worship there. The altar's outside of the holy place. It's where people make these sacrifices to atone for their sin. And so when God tells John to measure the people, listen, he's measuring their worship. And, he's, and, and the worship that's taking place specifically at the brazen altar. Why is that important? Here's why that's important. It's important to you. It's important to me has astounding consequences. Mark chapter 15, Jesus is dying on the cross. And and he cries out after he atones for sin. The Bible says, He who knew no sin became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus became sin for you and me, died on the cross, and when he died there, he shouted out in his last breath, he said, It is is finished. It, what it? The atonement for sin. The atonement for sin. No longer is it a matter of, you know, sacrificing animals and having the priest then go into the, before the mercy seat of God. No, Jesus says, I am the ultimate sacrifice. And, and immediately in the next verse, here's what we read, Mark 15, 38. It says, then the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. In other words, listen, there's no longer a separation between the people and the holy place. There's no longer a separation between the people and the mercy seat. Because what happens here is that God has torn the veil. It was torn from top to bottom. Symbolic that this is a work of God. God tore the veil. He gave us access to the throne of grace through Jesus' sacrifice. And so today, we can come boldly before God's throne of grace only to the degree that we have trusted in Jesus' sacrifice for our sin. Well, before this, the Jews, they couldn't come into the holy place. The nearest that they could come was to the brazen altar. And so since the worshipers here in Revelation chapter 11 are at the brazen altar and being measured there at the brazen altar, hey, the indication isn't, is that they're, they're not worshiping as New Testament believers, they're worshiping as Old Testament Jews. In other words, they're not trusting in Jesus Christ and his completed work for them to be right before God. They're trusting in their own works. And this is what God measures here in Revelation chapter 11. What God measures here is, hey, listen, 
Who are those people trusting in for their salvation? Now, huge application for us today. The application for you and me today, here it is. Maybe write it down. Take a walk with this question. How do we measure up as worshipers? How do we measure up as worshipers? See, listen, at the heart of our worship, we have to answer the question, look, do I have a spirit of, you know, I got to earn a right standing with God? Do I have a, a spirit of, I got I to gotta make what I've done wrong right? I have to atone somehow. You know, <clears throat> do we have an attitude that says, God loves me when I'm good, but he, but he really doesn't like me when I'm bad? See, because what happens in your life, what happens in my life, Satan works both sides of the fence. He tempts you to sin. And so then what happens is when you sin, Satan starts heaping on. He starts piling on. He's like, oh, you can't go to God now, you loser. God's mad at you. You've just, you look at what you've done. And we buy into that and we're like, oh man, you're right. And so what we should do when we fall into sin is we should run to the Lord and say, have mercy on me, God. I'm a sinner. I blew it again. But what we do so often is when we fall into sin, we buy into Satan's lie and we don't run to God immediately. We think, well, I need to let some, I got to let the dust settle. I need some time to pass between that. And I can't just do that and then go, oh, God, have mercy on me. And so we're like, oh, well, I got to, you know, maybe I got to go to church or maybe I got to help some old ladies across the street, something to, you know, show that I'm going it now, that I'm going in the right direction. Now, we are called to repent. We are called to, 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 repentance just means to turn. We are called to turn from our sin. But there's a big difference between that, between being convicted by the Holy Spirit and turning from our sin and equating my right standing with God to my performance. You're his child. I think one of the reasons God gives us children is so we can realize I, I, I never stop loving my kids. They do stupid things sometimes, but I don't stop loving them. I'd walk through fire for them. And that's God's heart towards you. Maybe today you've bought into the lie that, you know, hey, you, 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 you ain't good enough. You got to do some atoning work. You got, I mean, you got, you got some sacrifices to make, you know, kind of thing for God to accept you. That's not true. That's not true. God loves you. The Bible says, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The word confess, it just means to agree with God. That we call sin what God calls sin. We don't make some excuse for, oh, I, I've got an addiction. You know, I'm, I'm genetically predisposed to struggle in this way. Well, maybe you are. But just call it what God calls. God, I've sinned against you. Have mercy on me. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. How do we measure up as worshipers? Do, do I have some sort of element of works in my worship? You know, that, that man, I hope my good works outweigh my bad works kind of thing. I, I've explained this a lot, but it's so important because so many times I meet Christians who will say that they have a faith in Jesus Christ. But then when I ask a question and say, hey, how do you know you're going to heaven? So quickly we gravitate to, well, I'm a good person. Well, I try to keep the Ten Commandments. Well, you know, I'm not Charles Manson, whatever it is. And listen, if, if that becomes part of your answer, what you've just said is that it's Jesus and something else. Anytime it's Jesus plus anything... That's not trusting in Jesus. 
If that defines your definition of your own salvation today, I would ask you to repent of that. Today to recognize that you are saved by grace, through faith, in Jesus Christ. It's not of works so that you can boast about it. You have nothing to do with the equation other than to confess, I'm a sinner by nature and by choice. And I need a savior. I'm drowning out here. I cannot save myself. God, I need you. That is, that is everything. It's been said the good news and focus of the gospel is not about what you can do for God, but what he has already done for you in Christ. Now, we're continuing this attitude of asking, hey, is my life an act of worship towards God? And certainly it has to do with who am I trusting in for salvation. But listen, we got to understand worship of God involves our entire life. It's not just singing. And we we collect tithe during worship. Why? Because our giving is an act of worship to God. The way I treat my wife is an act of worship towards God. The way that that I interact with people, the way that I fill out my tax forms, everything that I do (coughs) is either uh, an expression of worship to God or it's an expression of worship of something else. And what I've noticed is that a lot of times man, we can get to the place to where, hey, look, is, it, is my worship that I'm trusting Jesus for everything in my life or not? You know, is Jesus my Savior or is my job my Savior? Is Jesus my Savior or is my girlfriend or my boyfriend or my wife or my husband, is that my Savior? That's the question we need to ask. Is Jesus my Savior or is this friendship my Savior or is, or is that person my Savior? See, because what, what happens is we can have this part of us, humanly speaking, that we turn to something else, someone else, for validation, for love, for acceptance. We look for things to save us so often. It's, it's been said that, you know, even good things can become idols when we turn them into God things. And I've noticed that what happens in, in, in our life so often is that, well, it's been explained this way. People have a self-defined hell. There's something in people's lives that, that, that they go, that for me is just Hades on a stick, man. And, I, and, and for me, like, you know, so for some people, it's a, it's, it's a fat hell. And they go, man, if, if, I, if I'm fat, then that's a horrible way for me to live. And so what happens then is I have to find some sort of functional savior to deliver me from that. And so then the gym becomes my functional savior or you know, my diet becomes my functional savior. And then everything gets sacrificed to that because, if, if, because that's going to save me from being fat. Or for some people, it's, it's a matter of you know, unloved. There's, I have, I have this, this, this monumental fear that I'm not going to be loved. And so for me, that is just the, that's the worst thing. So I need to find some sort of a savior to save me from being unloved. And this is where people will wrap their lives around a relationship. You know, or, you know, it's my kids. My kids, I get all my love and my esteem from my kids. Or I get all my love and my esteem from my friendships. Are those good things? Yes. But when we turn them into a God thing, they become an idol in our lives. And now we're worshiping them instead of worshiping the Creator and trusting the Creator to provide for me as only He can. And we have to take a walk with this and say, have I made a relationship an idol? Jesus talking to the woman at the well. 
He's telling her about the living water that's going to quench her thirst. You're never going to thirst again. And he's addressing her because she has this deep down thirst and she's looking to everything else in her life to quench this thirst. And how does he get his finger on the bullseye in her life? He tells her about living water. She says, tell me all about it. I'm 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 all ears. And he says, go get your husband and then I'll tell you about it. And she goes, well, I don't have a husband. Jesus says, bingo, there's your God, there's your idol, because the truth is, you've spoken well. You don't have a husband. You've had five husbands, and the dude you're shacking up with now, he's not even your husband. You're looking to men to fulfill that thirst in your life that only I can, that only I can quench. Maybe it's, it's a poor hell that you have, and you go, man, I just, for me, not having money is just the worst thing in the world. So what happens is, You either look to God to provide for you and trust in God, or what happens so often is we turn some good thing into a God thing, and we say, my job, which is good. The Bible says you should work, and the guy who doesn't want to work shouldn't eat. All of that, but when it becomes a God thing, now what happens is everything gets sacrificed to that. And I tell my wife and my kids, you know what? You come second to the job. I'm going to take all the overtime I can get. I'm going to work as much as I can. I'm going to focus on this, the, the, the thing, what? To save me from being poor. And so what we have to do is we have to prayerfully decide, man, how am I worshiping God? And do I worship things instead of God? Do I trust in stuff, in relationships, in anything else? What am I trusting in and I'm not trusting in God? Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. And we're going to finish up here, so go ahead and turn there. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Pick it up in verse 10. And listen to what Paul says. 1 Corinthians 3, verse 10, According to the grace of God which was given to me, as a wise master builder I've laid the foundation, and another builds on it, but let each one take heed how he builds on it. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 11, For no other foundation, or 3, verse 11, For no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Christ Jesus. Now, if anyone builds on this foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become clear, for the day will declare it, because it will be revealed by fire. And the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. If anyone's work, which he has built on it, endures, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss But he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. What Paul is saying is this. He's saying, listen, at the bottom of everything, it has to be Jesus. At the bottom of everything in your life, it has to be Jesus. And I don't care what your worship looks like on the outside. If Jesus isn't the foundation, then the building is going to come down. In 2002, there was a report done after 9-11 and the towers came down and there was a report on the Twin Towers and they were looking to see what had caused them to collapse. Clearly, everybody can see on the video what the mechanism that started the process was. You can fly an airplane into a building, right? You expect the thing to come down. 
Well, what they found out was that it should not have collapsed. And the reason that it collapsed was that the steel buildings were supposed to be covered with a flame-retardant foam, and that the foam was improperly applied so that when the planes hit the building, it all broke off like glass. And it should have stayed in place. And so they said there was a faulty design. Now what revealed that? Fire. Fire proved that thing. And I want you to notice how Paul concludes this thought in verses 16 and 17 here. He says, Do you not know that you are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? If anyone defiles the temple of God, God will destroy him, for the temple of God is holy, which temple you are. Now that word temple that's used here, it's the exact same word that's used in Revelation chapter 11. The same temple that God instructs John to go and measure. Here's what I want you to hear as we close. When you invite Christ to be the Lord of your life, and you receive the indwelling presence and power of His Holy Spirit, and you just live out your life by faith, trusting day by day in Jesus and in His completed work, and in the empowering of His Holy Spirit, well, listen, when God measures your life then, He's going to find you perfect and complete. Why? Because you are the temple of the living God. takeaway question, the thing we got to take a walk with is how does my worship measure up? How does my worship measure up? Do I truly worship Christ? Am I truly worshiping what Christ has done for me? Has everything in my life then become in this, this rightful subjection to where I say, I'm not going to look for my satisfaction in the things of the world. I'm not going to look for my rescuer. My Savior is not going to be my job. My Savior is not going to be some relationship. My Savior is not going to be a gym or a hobby or whatever it is. My Savior is going to be Jesus Christ. He's the one that I'm going to look to. He's the one that's going to get my worship.